Well, I hope at least some of you in the room are excited. Should be some school kids that are excited to be out from school for the next week. Uh, undoubtedly in this room today, church family, and for sure if we were to breach the walls of, of our house of worship, we would, uh, we would find that many of us are busy, some of us are stressed, some depressed. There are some in this place who are sorrowful, lonely. As they walk through the Christmas season, maybe for the first time without someone, or maybe just as a season that reminds them of ones who aren't here. Undoubtedly, there are some who are excited and on cloud nine for what time of year it is. And here's the reality. I, I think if we found ourselves living 2,000 years ago, we would, we would find the same kind of emotions both around us and even within us. If we found ourselves living 2,000 years ago, a week out from the birth of Christ, most of us, for being true, most of us, we, we would find ourselves living as, as Gentiles with pagan forms of worship where we, we offered offerings to petty and inconsistent and often cruel idols and gods, uh, where we would live if we were really committed religiously in a hopeless servitude, or maybe we would be exploring some of the new philosophies and mystery religions that are out there, but in all of this, trying to find a way to satisfy an eternal longing that our families, our business, certainly not uh, the state of things politically around us or religiously would be able to offer. Now, if we found ourselves living 2,000 years ago, a week out from the birth of Christ, and we happen to be of the Jewish people, we would find ourselves in, in somewhat what would seem like a, a better state, because we would find ourselves living as God's chosen people with access to God's revealed Word, to the Old Testament, which, which gives us what at that time would have been the most perfect system of divine revelation and moral code that the world had ever seen with the Old Testament law complete with its 613 individual commands, its seven festivals we're called to observe, and five different sacrifices that we offer. In addition to this, our religious leaders of the day, uh, primarily the Pharisees, would have uh, quite literally thousands of additional oral commands to add to this law of, of what we must do if we are to be right with God. And though seemingly it would seem that we're in a better position because we have access to the truth, here's the reality. We would quickly discover that not one of us is able to achieve and follow through on every one of those commands the law ascribes. And so we would find, here's all this to say, church family, we would find ourselves 2,000 years ago, a week out from the birth of Christ in a world where busyness is normal, where some are excited, where some are deflated, but we would find ourselves in a world where true hope would be lacking. This is where we would find ourselves, and, but something's going to happen that changes all of that. And so I invite you, we're going to go to the book of Galatians this morning, the book of Galatians. Uh, we, in the last year, we've looked at Philippians. If you remember where Philippians is, Ephesians, Galatians, the two books in front of it, the book of Galatians. And we're going to pick up in chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4. 
Now understand, as we come to chapter 4, Paul is writing a letter to a a group of Gentile believers who've come to know Jesus Christ by grace through faith, but but there is a group of people who have come amongst them, Paul calls the Judaizers, who have said, that's great that you believe Jesus is Lord. That's wonderful, but if you want to keep your relationship with Jesus, if you want to maintain your salvation, you've got to come back to these Old Testament laws, festivals, and sacrifices, and make sure you're doing them all. Otherwise, you might lose it. And, and in this go back, Paul, Paul is writing to them to say, what are you doing? Don't you dare. You're not saved by works of the law. You're saved by grace through faith. And And in doing this, he unpacks, well, what is the purpose and nature of the law? And that's what he spends in chapter 3. And it's important that you and I understand this real fast before we jump into chapter 4. What was the purpose of this law? What was the purpose of of this this revelation of God, this this system of moral code that's reflective? What was the purpose? Well, let me give you what the purpose was. Here's what Paul says. That the reason the law was given was to do several things. One, it was to help us understand that God is holy, holy, holy that he is entirely other, he is entirely different, he is without sin, and sin cannot be in his presence. It's to help us understand God is holy. In light of that, it's to help us understand that sin, it's, it's to expose the fact that our sin is not simply misled ideas and naive impulses, but our sin is willful and intentional violation of God's character. And it deserves real punishment, and the only way that punishment is deflected is through a substitution of sacrifice. Not only this, but the law was to help, as it exposed our sin, restrain us from walking out into all of our sinful impulses. Not only was it to restrain us, but it was to demonstrate that we needed a sacrifice to atone. And in all of this, The purpose of the law, as it reveals all of this, was to point forward to the person who would truly pay attention, was to point forward to God's promised Messiah, that seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, that promised blessing to Abraham, Genesis 12 and 15, to point towards the one, the Messiah, the person who would fulfill all the law and bring salvation. And so this is the purpose. And so Paul says in light of this, look with me, chapter four, verse one. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he is not different from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he, the heir, is under guardians, tutors, and managers or governors until the date set by his father. Here's what he does. He pulls an analogy out out of Roman culture. He pulls an analogy and he says, we were at one time under, here was the purpose of the law, and the law was, was set and established to be, to be a tutor and a guardian. And he says, this is just like, this is just like the individual that's born to a, into a family of wealth and prominence where there is an inheritance. Well, that, that individual, that son, that son doesn't have just freedom to do whatever he wants right away simply because he's born into the place of inheritance. No, instead, the the, the father has fixed because the son, and that word for child there, just like a child, it's actually two Greek words that come together that literally mean one who cannot speak for themselves. It refers to someone who is immature, who, who cannot stand and give legal representation to themselves. It speaks to a child. And that this child would have, would have tutors, would have those who, who were in the interest of protecting the child 
uh, the, the person of the child, and then would have governors, those who were to protect the, the inheritance, what the child was promised to, that they would come in and they would give representation. They would provide restraint and oversight over the child until the time came, the appointed time, set by the father, the specific time where the, the, the immaturity, the restraint of immaturity was pulled off, and that child would be a full-fledged adult son ready to receive the inheritance and live in the freedom given by the father. He pulls this analogy out of Roman culture, and he says, just like that, verse 3, while we were children, while we were in immaturity, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. He said in the same way that a child who is an heir is held under restraint and guardianship until the appointed time, so we too, in those past tense, we were in bondage. Now, bondage sounds inherently like a really negative word. If you, if you go through and look how it's used, it can be negative in, in, a, in an evil sense. It can be negative, not necessarily in an evil sense, but just in something that is restricting. It actually can be used in a positive sense. Elsewhere, Paul will say that we are in bondage, in captivity to God in Christ Jesus. So, context depends. Well, here, the comparison is to what these tutors and guardians do. So, we were under, in, in a state of immaturity, we were under this restraint, this protection, we were under bondage, unable to get the real freedom, it says, to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this is an interesting little phrase that, that honestly, in, in my opinion, as I read through it, it, it doesn't, it sounds weird to my mind, but here's what it's referring to. It's referring to essentially the ABCs of something, right? Think about it. When you learn the basic foundations of how to speak, how to read, how to write. What's the first thing we all learn? The ABCs. This is the letter A. This is the letter B. This is the letter C. This is the sound they make. This is the, this is, uh, the, the long sound for the vowel, the short sound for the vowel. This is uppercase. This is lowercase. We learn the fundamental ABCs. But the fundamental ABCs, if, if that's all you remain ensnared to, imagine only knowing the ABCs as a grown adult sitting in the greatest library known to man, surrounded by works of literature, but, but unable to have any freedom or ability to enjoy the blessing and richness of it all because you are restricted to only knowing the ABCs. This is what he says, that, that in the same way we were under bondage to the foundational, the elementary principles, what is he referring to? Of the law. The law, which is a good thing, it's a revelation of God, it's not a bad thing, but we were under restriction, we were under bondage to what the law taught us. That the law was the preparation, it was the entry, it was the foundational course to prepare us for something coming. That it was not intended to be the final, but something that was preparatory. And we were in bondage to it because here is the reality, church family. The purpose, go back to the purpose of the law, the law was to point to the ultimate means of salvation. The law itself was not intended to be the means of salvation, which means if you were under the law and you really understood it, 
you would understand the law itself was not going to be what fixes the bondage. Instead, the law itself was actually going to expose our bondage and say that, hey, since you're in bondage, guess what? The wages of sin is death. There is not only just the reality of the law, but the curse of the law. But it pointed forward. But here's the problem. You notice I said, if we understood it correctly, because here's the other reality. We being those immature children, and you see this all throughout Scripture with the Jews, rather than receiving the law and recognizing what it was doing, what it was telling us about God, what is it was exposing in us, how it was pointing to what the solution was and, and who it was pointing towards, we do what is basic to our broken, sinful nature, and we twisted what was to be a response to God into a do this, do that, check this box. If I can achieve enough good works of righteousness, I can achieve salvation. What is that? That is a works-based salvation that says, yes, I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. I did it. I have saved myself. It is a boast of the flesh, and it is impossible. It says we were, as children, we too were in bondage, but then look what it says, church family. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He says, but, but when the fullness of time had come, when, when time was filled up to capacity, when the precise moment, when the right moment came, God sent forth His Son. Well, what do we mean by the fullness of time, church family? Well, sovereignly, it was the time that God had, had chosen, the time that God had ordained for the, the sending of His Son. Prophetically, it was the time of fulfillment to the vision given to Daniel, 483 years after the decree of the Persian Empire to rebuild Jerusalem. Not only that, but religiously for the Jews, it was the time where the law had run its course. The time to take the, the intro course, the time to get the foundational understanding, it was over, it was done. The time had passed. It was for the Gentiles religiously. We mentioned the hopelessness of petty gods. It was a time we know from historians where even the Gentiles were growing tired and dissatisfied with false gods. The ancient myths were losing their hold. There was a yearning even among the peoples outside of Israel for a real and true deliverer who could make good on a promise for a real and true and satisfying life. It wasn't just sovereignly and prophetically and religiously, but politically. The time when Christ would come was a time unlike anything the world had seen to that point. The Roman Empire had ushered in what, what we call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The Roman Empire had, had, had conquered all of what would have been at that time the known world. And yes, there was other ports of, parts of the world they knew, but, but the primary focus of humanity at that time, the Roman Empire ruled it all. And, and in that place, they had roads, stable roads, safe for travel, which were guarded by numerous legions of Roman soldiers spread throughout the empire. So there was a level of peace and stability that enabled travel, that enabled enterprise, movement, not only this, but prior to the Roman Empire, a process, the Hellenization of the world had, had broken out, meaning this, that throughout this empire, 
You have all these different ethnic people groups who all have their own uh, mother languages, but they're all also speaking the same language in Greek, which has been described as the most perfect language in the history of humanity to describe abstract thought in the most complete and tangible manner, the perfect language for the New Testament to be written in. Not only that, but that process of Hellenization, that common language such that I may be from one part of the empire, you may be from another, we may meet somewhere in the middle but be able to communicate with one another. Not only that, but it brought a commonality of culture in many places such that in the fullness of time, all these things come together socially to create a place in a world where, that was ripe where the good news should be, would be shared clearly, accurately, where it could spread with a level of efficiency and power that, that were unlike anything the world had seen to that point and, and honestly would be something that in even the decades after that would begin to collapse. In the fullness of time, in the precise right moment, God sent forth. He sent forth. It's the verb we get apostle from. It means to send someone as the official representative. He didn't just send someone, but he sent the official, the ultimate representative. And he he didn't just send someone to represent him. No, he sent his son whom Scripture tells us doesn't just represent God, but is God. He is the perfect and final revelation of God. He sent His Son. He sent His Son from heaven to earth, from perfection to brokenness, from paradise to sorrow, from glory to suffering. He would send Him from the shores of Galilee to the Mount of Jerusalem, from the innocence of a manger to the curse of a cross. He sent his son, his son who it says in a statement, born of a woman. Now, that, that phrase really is, is very simple. It means that the son, Jesus, in the fullness of time, that if, if we had been living 2,000 years ago, a week before the coming of Christ, we would have found ourselves in a very hopeless state, that in the fullness of time, a week later, there is born unto us a Savior in the, in the town of David, That this Savior, that Jesus, in the fullness of time, born of a woman, means He was born quite real and quite human. That's what it means in simplicity, but we know from Scripture that phrase has huge implications. He was born of a woman prophetically, Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve have sinned, the fall has broken in, the curse is laid down, God looks at the serpent, the enemy of old, and He says, the seed of the woman will crush your head. And by the way, don't miss the imagery. If you have a snake and you crush its head, what happens to the snake? It dies. It's gone. It's obliterated. There's no surviving. It's a prophetic birth. It wasn't just a prophetic birth. We know from Scripture it was a miraculously supernatural birth. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Not only this, but we know from Philippians 2 that Jesus didn't just take on an appearance of humanity, but He came in real human likeness. Yes, there's a difference. We're born not of a virgin. Yes, His birth was prophetic. It was supernatural, but the humanity He possessed was real. If men in the carpenter shop, He wasn't exempt from splinters, from hammering His thumb, from cutting His arm or His hands. 
It means that he wasn't exempt when his father likely died sometime in between 12 and 30 from the sorrow that would have hit his heart. No different than he wasn't exempt from the sorrow at seeing his friend Lazarus die in every way, church family. Jesus was born human. He knows our weaknesses and our value, our finitude and our fears, our trials and our temptations, our griefs and our despairs, our joys and our beauty. He has lived the full range of the human experience, yet Scripture says without sin. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son forth born of a woman, not just born of a woman, but born under the law, born under that most perfect revelation to that point of of God's character, of, of what His standards of righteousness, of holiness would look like played out. He sent His Son born under the law, under the requirements of the law. That's why as you read the birth story, Jesus on the eighth day, where was he? Being circumcised. He was born to a Jewish home where they would have read the the Torah. He would have prayed to God. He attended the synagogue, observed the festivals. And we know from Jesus, he didn't come to abolish the law, but in his own words, he said, I came to fulfill the law. And as one who is fully human, unlike us who, who could not achieve flawless righteousness according to the law, he met and fulfilled every demand, every expectation, every regulation, every requirement of the law. Not only that, not only was he born under the standard of the law, but he was also born under the curse of the law. A curse which, look what it says. God sent His Son born in these circumstances so that, here's the purpose, the Son might redeem those who are under the law. Those of us, if we had found ourselves 2,000 years ago living under the standard of the law, which we would fail to meet from the inside out, therefore bearing the curse of the law, that is separation from God, the curse of death, He came to redeem. And this word redeem at its heart, it implies this, that there is a payment, a ransom that must be made, that must be paid in order to take someone who is in captivity, who is under penalty, who is on the seller's block as a slave. In order to free them, there is a payment that must be paid on their behalf. And it says that God sent His Son in the fullness of time, why? To make that Ransom payment. Hebrews 9 and 10 is very clear that the blood of animals, of goats and bulls, would never be enough. It would never be enough to atone for the sins of, of, of any one of us. Not only that, but it also tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no freeing from the, from the block. Here's the reality. It means there is no possible way any one of us can do enough or find enough to make that ransom payment. But he sent his son, church family, who knew no sin to become our sin and to make that ransom payment. And that ransom payment is not to the serpent. It's not to Satan. The ransom payment is to God Himself. The curse we're under is the curse of God's just and holy wrath being poured out on sin. We deserve what Scripture calls hell. The ransom was to make the payment for hell on our behalf that He might redeem, that He might buy out, that He might free. Being unique, we qualify. 
Because only one who is human could represent humanity and make atonement for humanity. Only a righteous human could make payment for unrighteous humans. And only one who is fully God could bear the full weight of hell to buy out humans and then do this. So it's not just that he might redeem us from under the law, but look at the purpose. So that he might redeem those of us out from under the law, its requirements, its standards, and its curse. For what purpose? That we might receive the adoption as sons. Because only one who is fully God could bear that price, could make that payment, and those whom he buys out, not make them servants, but adopt them as full-fledged sons and family members. That word adopt, going back to the child analogy there, that word adopt It refers to one having the standing in a family of an adult son. Remember the analogy at the beginning, the child, the child's not a slave, the child's actually the owner. He has the inheritance, the rights, and everything, but the child is immature. There are these restraints placed on him, and yet it says, Jesus, when he redeems us, we are adopted, we are given even as a baby believer who is in need of growth, at that moment of salvation, we may be in our condition in need to grow. Oh, and God will grow us. But in our position, our seat at the table, the family table of God, we are not over here sitting at the kid table. We are seated as a grown son at God's table. And there's a reason it says adopted as sons, by the way. It's not because that's just a category term. It's trying to drive out a point. And, and, and in, in that day and time, who was the child that received the full inheritance? The firstborn son. When it uses that term son, elsewhere say we're co-heirs with Christ. Christ is obviously the first in, in that sense amongst those who are saved. That's how when it uses the term firstborn son with Christ, it's not saying Christ had a beginning. It's saying he is the one who has rights to all the inheritance but it says that he makes us co-heirs with him. So whether you are boy or girl, man or woman, young or old, if you have been adopted by Christ through his redemption, you're adopted as a grown child of God with the full rights, privileges, responsibilities, and inheritance and joy that is, would be due only to that firstborn son, adopted, brought into the family. And notice this, church family, God's purpose here was not simply to save us from our sin, to redeem us out. No, the purpose of redeeming us out was to adopt us into his family, to know him, to love him, to be known and loved by him. And here's what happens in that adoption. In that adoption where we are made sons, by the way, adoption in the Roman world, which would have been where Paul pulled things, if you were biologically born in the the ancient world, you could be disinherited. If you were adopted, you could never be disinherited. We're adopted. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. And if we're adopted as sons, look at this, because you are sons, because of this adoption, God has sent forth, there's that word, God has, just as God sent Jesus as the official revelation and representative, so God, same way, sends 
not the second of the person of the Trinity, but now the third person of the Trinity, God Himself, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts. That when you and I cry out for salvation, what Jesus does is, is the blood He shed for us is applied to our account. The ransom payment is paid. We are pulled off the block of punishment. And are not just pulled off that block of punishment, but we're, we're cleaned up. We're, we're declared righteous. We're we're made holy, but we're not just servants in the house of God. We are adopted as full and total sons. And in that moment, as all that transpires, God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit comes into the very core of our being, our heart, where he dwells, where he seals us, never to be unsealed. And it says this, he cries. He is crying out. And that word cry is meant to be a term that describes intensity, passion. It's in the present tense, meaning he is always crying out. And look what he is crying. Look at the transformation. He is crying out, Abba, Father. Abba. Father, Abba is simply the Aramaic word for father. And, and you'll hear different things. We pre preachers try to be trendy with it. Oh, it's like this. Oh, it's like that. Let's, let's just be real simple with what Abba is, church family. Abba as a term for father, it would have been the normal term for a child in, in Jesus' day to call his dad, his father. But as a term, it's not some kind of casual term that lacks any form of weight and respect hey, daddy-o, it's not anything like that. But at the same time, it's not a term that implies some kind of distance. It's, it's a term that refers to intimacy. When a child would say it, they were expressing an affection, a confidence, a loyalty. It would have been far from personal detachment. It would have been a cry from the heart, Abba. It would have carried both a weight of respect and a weight of personalness. Because you see, church family, all of a sudden in this passage, what Paul has shown us is that there was a time when the only thing we could have called God, we could have called God God, and we would have known Him as judge. But in the fullness of time, the Father sent His Son, born of a woman, under the law, in order to redeem us out from under the law, in order to adopt us as sons. And now those of us who have been adopted by grace through faith have received the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit cries out. We now relate to God, not, not impersonally as just God, not as judge, but we relate as Father. There is an intimacy, church family, for those found in Christ that is given with God that is unlike anything even the angels know. So he says, therefore, you are no longer a slave. You are no longer enslaved to the law. You are no longer enslaved to sin, but you are a son. And if you are a son, you are an heir through God. By God's grace and an intentional act, you are an heir with an inheritance and a hope. See, what we celebrate this season, church family, is that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. You say, well, pastor, what do we do with this? This is, this is a lot of information. This is a lot of, of looking at what God is doing. What do we do with this? So let me, give, let me make it real simple. One, there's some of us in this place 
maybe in this room, maybe watching online, we need to repent and know the grace of His redemption. See, what this passage tells us very clearly is every one of us was born into immaturity. Every one of us was born into brokenness. Every one of us was born by nature into the rebellion of sin without a a father-child relationship with God. Absolutely, there's a relationship there, but it's not a relationship found in salvation. It's a relationship found as a sinner who is guilty of violating the holy God of the universe, and, and if nothing changes, we'll only know Him as judge. We are born into rebellion. We are born in. There is not one of us who is exempt. It does not matter if you were born to believing parents. It does not matter if you were born to a pastor or preacher. It it doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter what lineage you come from. No one is exempt from being born as a sinner, which also means this, and, and we've said it, there is not one of us who can pay our own ransom payment. There is not one of us who can buy our way out of being a sinner. In fact, Jesus will go so far as to say, during His time on earth, He will go so far as to say that on the day of judgment, there will be people who stand in front of Him and say, Jesus, we preached in Your name. We prophesied in Your name. We healed in Your name. We did a bunch of stuff in Your name. We did. We went so far as what we did. We did Jesus' works. And Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me forever. I do not know you. I don't know you. You're not adopted as a son. I don't know you. You see, understand, church family, there are some of us who are in a despair because we have tried to do every religious and Christian work we can in order to be right with God, and if that is the path you want to go down, you will never stop going down that path. You will never be able to attend enough church, read enough Bible, give enough money, care for enough people to make yourself right with God. It's impossible. There are some of us who are, who are in a despair because it's not that we've tried anything and everything Christian. We've tried anything and everything not Christian. There is, there's only one path to God. It's in Christ, and there is no amount of work inside or outside of any religion you can do to make yourself right. There is only one path to healing, to hope. There is only one path to adoption. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which is going to likely be expressed in a response to the Spirit's conviction that you today are in fact a sinner who does in fact deserve, rightly so, the judgment of God. But oh, hear the heart of God today, friend. We know that God in the fullness of time sent His Son. Why? Because God so loved you. He loves you. And He has sent a means of salvation, and you can know that salvation, that hope, that satisfaction, real, tangibly, and satisfying today. But you have to respond. For many of us, and we say, well, Pastor, amen, that's, that's a great call for those who don't know Christ. But here's the reality, church family, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, who've been saved by grace through faith. This passage is written to believers. This passage is written to believers who have truly been saved by grace through faith, but that salvation which came by grace, not through their own work, they have been deceived, and they are now trying to live that salvation out on the basis of works. They're trying to do, go back, I've got to do these things to maintain so, so, so that my seat at the table isn't forfeited, so that I don't get kicked back out to the kids' table. 
And what Paul wants to be sure and what we need to know, church family, is we must rest and enjoy the goodness of God's adoption. This is the primary point. If you have responded in repentant faith to Jesus Christ, you are adopted into the family of God, period. Nothing more to be said, nothing more to be done. Jesus has done it all. Our standing is good because of Jesus' blood. What we must now do, if we're going to really understand this, what we must now do is we must actively in our faith rest and abide. We must abide in Christ to rest, to take captive our thoughts and to think and begin to, to, to think through what all Jesus did on our behalf and, and how I, I have been secured. What have I been given? What does it mean that I, I, am, a, I am a son? I, I am, I've been adopted as a son. So you've been adopted as sons, adopted as daughters. You've been adopted as children of God. What does this mean? It means he is faithful. It means he is, he is over us. It means he is for us. It means he is with us. It means so many things, and it's not, doesn't mean those things because I did enough, it's because Jesus did enough. So we abide by faith. We, as we think on those things and our hearts are filled with joy, that's a biblical term, it's called rejoice. We rejoice in the goodness of his adoption. By the way, when the disciples came back, Jesus, we healed people in your name, we prophesied in your name the same kind of things that those people that Jesus looked with said, I'm gonna look at and say, depart from me. The disciples were saying the same things. We did all this stuff in your name. And Jesus said, oh, I saw it. And then he makes this statement, but don't rejoice in what you did. Rejoice that your name is written forever in the book of life. Let me give you an example. There's so many different ways, understand, church family, as we, as we do this, as we abide by faith, we grow in intimacy because we now know God as Father, as Abba. There is a security there. We now know that because God is our Father, the King of the universe, we have no sense of fear or intimidation to run boldly straight into His throne room and climb up in His lap. There's a childlikeness to that, which is why you understand Jesus says we have to have faith like a child. God's not too busy. God's not too distracted. We're not some nameless servant. We're his children. You better believe, I don't forget my daughter's name. You better believe, even though she can move quick and sometimes we do lose track of her, it's not because we lose track of her. She can move fast and she's small. but we know where she is. Listen, if it comes between a Sunday morning of making sure I know she's safe or having a conversation with you, where am I gonna choose every time? Her safety, why? Because she's my daughter. Doesn't mean I don't love you. I'd expect you to do the same to me if it was your child. It's huge that God, because we're adopted, we can call Abba Father, we can cry Father. Now, look how this plays out just real fast. I'll give you one example. Paul in 2 Corinthians is facing, he says they face despair so great. They face a depression so great. They face a loneliness and a sorrow so great. They have despaired even of life. But listen what he says as he speaks of God's comfort to the Corinthian church. He says, grace to you and peace from God May you know his unmerited favor, his peace, his harmony, his wholeness from God. Now listen, our Father, our Abba, 
and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we are able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also is the comfort in abundance in Christ. The whole reason in the midst of our sorrow, the whole reason this time of year, which is a mixture of emotions for many of us, as excited as I am to see some family tomorrow and next week and celebrate Christmas, there is always the burden this time of year. This year was the 15th anniversary of my grandmother's murder. There's always someone lacking, and there's a horde of this time of year just as much as there's a celebration. All of us have those things, and here's the reality. My ability as a child of God to know his comfort, what does it come down to? The fact that he is my father. And we could pick so many other aspects of the Christian life that tie to the relationship we have with God, which is not through the works of the law, but faith in Christ who did the work to redeem us out and adopt us. And so, church family, we better learn how in faith to rest real comfortably into who Jesus is and what He's done and enjoy the goodness of, of His adoption because here's the ultimate reality. We are called to honor and reflect the glory of His adoption. We are called to honor and reflect the glory of His adoption, to, to live out the Christian faith. What I'm not advocating is to tell you, hey, hey, Jesus has done it all, so do nothing, church family. Well, that's clearly not what Scripture says. But the reason Paul comes down so hard on the Galatian church for reverting back to this old pattern of humanity of a works-based righteousness is this. You and I will never work ourselves into honoring and glorifying Jesus. You want to greater honor and glorify Jesus? You begin by faith to abide in Him. You begin by faith to rejoice in who He is and what He's done. You begin to love Him, and you will obey His commandments. Because as we begin to do that, you know what's going on? The Holy Spirit of God that God says is sent within us, who indwells us, who's crying out, Abba, Father, who testifies to us that we are His children, what does He do? It says in Scripture that this fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. He produces love in us, that the love of God is poured out in our hearts. How? Romans 5, by the Holy Spirit. Because you see, sons do not obey out of fear. And grown sons do not obey out of duty. Grown sons follow out of love. So if we want to lovingly honor and glorify, if we want to lovingly honor and reflect the glory of God's adoption of us as, as children, it's going to truly be conditional on how much we truly learn how to rest and rejoice in the greatness of His adoption. Legalism will not produce love. Only abiding faith in Christ and submission to the Holy Spirit will produce that. So church family, as we walk around today, we don't live in a day of hopelessness. Things are hopeless if you're part of the world. 
But things aren't hopeless because the glory of God has been revealed. Because in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, who, who has paid the price to redeem every man, woman, boy, and girl off the block to adopt them as sons. But there must be a response. And as we go about our lives, church family, May we live our lives resting and rejoicing in His adoption so greatly that when someone looks at us like Charlie Brown and says, can somebody just tell me what does Christmas really mean? We can say, oh, I can tell you. I can tell you in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Let's pray, church family. Father, thank You that in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, You did not Send your son to come and condemn all the earth to bring that final judgment. No, Jesus, uh, the first time you were sent, the first time you came, when you, were, when you were born of a virgin placed in that manger, you came to fulfill what we cannot. Jesus, and for all of us, may we just grow ever deeper. For my brothers and sisters in this room, may we grow ever deeper and understanding what exactly you've done for us. And as we rest in that hope, as we rest in that joy, as we rest in the privilege and delight of having been adopted as children, as Holy Spirit, you indwell us and you fill us as you, as you have sealed us, you move and spur and create and foster love in our hearts. Because Jesus, if we are yours, then, then truly, Lord, we do. We want to honor and reflect your glory. So Jesus, open our eyes. Jesus, for anyone watching, anyone in the room who, who really does not know you, you know who they are. And Holy Spirit, your word says you're touching their hearts. May their eyes see clearly. May they respond as you convict them, Lord, not out of shame, not out of guilt, not out of manipulation, Lord, but in, in the unbelievable joy of knowing the debt they keep trying to pay and they can't, you have paid. Jesus, may today be a day of salvation, whether it's someone here, maybe someone you open a door for one of us to share this message to later today, Lord. You move, may we respond. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.